Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. This is your host for today, Taylor Brown, and I am the producer of this podcast. This episode is a unique collaboration with Athletes for Hope in recognition of Mental Health Awareness Month. Athletes for Hope is a nonprofit that aims to educate, encourage, and assist athletes in their efforts to engage with community and charitable causes, to increase public awareness of and support for those efforts, and to inspire others to do the same. They have launched a campaign highlighting the importance of mental health in sports and to uplift the stories of athletes and their personal experiences in this space. In this special episode, we will be discussing what a more mindful sports culture can be and the positive impacts it can have on athlete mental health. Today, I'll be moderating a conversation with our two wonderful hosts, Drs. Keith Kaufman and Tim Pinnell. Keith Kaufman, PhD, CMPC, is a clinical and sports psychologist specializing in the mental training of athletes and others who wish to improve their health and performance. He has operated his own practice since 2008 and currently has two offices in the Washington DC metropolitan area. Dr. Kaufman also served as a research associate at the Catholic University of America and taught undergraduate sports psychology there for over a decade. Tim Pinot, PhD, is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in Washington DC and has taught courses in mindfulness and meditation at the Catholic University of America. His 10 plus years as a competitive rower and coach sparked his interest in sports psychology. Dr. Pinot also has a particular specialty in working with collegiate athletes and teams, and he incorporates mindfulness-based approaches in his private practice to facilitate performance enhancement in other domains such as business. Keith and Tim, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Thank you Thanks so much, Taylor. Yeah, it's fun for us to get interviewed for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually, you guys are the ones asking the questions. Now we flip it around. I realized, um, Tim, we also both forgot to mention in our bios the MSP Institute. So we should probably mention quickly <laughs> that we're we're both affiliated with, and and this is where the podcast comes from, our MSP Institute, where we work on education and consultation around the integration of mindfulness and sport all over the world. So that's probably also important to mention. Yeah, you. that feels yeah. like a big one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And a little bit of a context here. I met uh, Keith and Tim when I did the MSP instructor training a few years ago, and I was so impressed by the program and the knowledge that they were bringing to this group of practitioners that I approached them and said, Hey, uh, do you guys want to do a podcast? And a few weeks later, uh, we, we launched our podcast. So it's, uh, it's been a, a really great experience so far. I I really enjoy working with Keith and Tim and Carol and the MSP Institute. Um, so, uh, let's just jump right into the content here. We, We don't have a lot of time. Um, but today we're, we're really talking about, um, sports culture as a whole. Uh, so much we talk about our work with individual athletes or teams, um, and and one of the one of the points of conversation uh, in our last episode with um, 
Dr. Andrew Willanen was about how you go about creating systemic change in sports and, and, and how, that, um, how that starts to happen. Uh, you know, children are specializing in sports earlier and earlier in their lives. Um, parents are really paying inordinate sums of money for these sports uh, and competition seems to be growing ever higher. Um, in the current paradigm, so often we see young athletes uh, and, and old athlete, older athletes feel this pressure to perform, um, which can be incredibly overwhelming. Uh, I'm just wondering, how would you describe what this current paradigm is in sports and some of the issues that are inherent with it? Yeah. Well, I, I think you used a, a key word there, which is pressure. Um, I think there's pressure at, at all levels. I think there's a lot of social pressure. I think there's a lot of pressure to achieve. Um, I, I, a lot of things we talk about sometimes like the, the pressure of social media and a lot of the comparisons and how, how they've grown in modern youth sport. Um, I, I've seen, I think the good news, I've seen some youth sport organizations kind of recognize how much pressure has started to come into youth sport and, and try to re-emphasize ideas like fun and skill development, or even make a distinction between, you know, this, this particular activity, if you register for it, is for fun. This one is more for skill development and, and perhaps a more serious quote-unquote track. Um, so, and, and there are, of course, there's organizations that have come up like the Positive Coaching Alliance that, that have tried to make a difference in how um, coaches and coaches' expectations end up affecting kids. Um, but I think undoubtedly, this is a culture of pressure. And, and the way that I often explain it with, within the context of MSBE, but also within the context of my private practice is basically we do things backwards, um, where, where outcome is emphasized result is emphasized, winning is emphasized. And, and not that those things aren't important. Of course, they're important. Um, but if you emphasize the outcome, it's like trying to, you know, read the end of the book before you've really gotten started. And, and so to try to kind of recalibrate and, and focus on the process, focus on the journey, um, that's, that's really the call to action that, that I think was the impetus for us at least getting involved in mindfulness for sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you, you mentioned too, like that there are these systemic factors and I think, yeah, it's like, it is, it is a system. And like, when we talk about the, the system, the culture that is sport, we need to recognize really zooming out that like that in itself exists in a bigger system Our like Western culture in the United States, you know, just all the different ways that we are given these messages about needing to perform and achieve and be perfect. I, I mean, I think a lot, even just about how grading works, you think about it and kids, you know, in school, they turn in an assignment and you start at a hundred and just get points knocked off. Right. So it's like the expectation, anytime you hand in a, a paper, a quiz, whatever is perfection. And so the only possible thing that could happen is failure. Right. When you get one question wrong, even you get a 99, you know, it's like, ah, but I started at 100. I should still have 100. Right. It plants that seed. And so we carry around this expectation that I need to be, that I need to be perfect. Right. And that permeates so many things that we do and clearly into sport. Even though sport, like most endeavors, like is one of failure. Right. You, you try something that, you know, and, and, and you, you assess whether or not it works. 
and then use that information to like tweak your form, tweak your performance. And, and I think we just, over time, you know, these, these concepts like failure get to be so emotionally loaded. People stop being able to do, I think what, what Keith is talking about, like focus on the process and separate out the outcome. You know, I, uh, I was actually just talking to a client the other day about kind of establishing her own mindfulness practice. And we were talking about the idea of consistency and she was getting down on herself because she was like, ah, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't practice. Uh, I didn't do a lot of my formal practice this week. You know, and I caught her and I was like, wait a second, that sounds kind of critical, right? So you're judging yourself for not having done the practice. And she was like, yeah, I am. And so we talked about like what function that sense of shame and embarrassment serves. Um, and she pushed back. She's like, but, but even so, I, I feel like consistency is really important, right? It's like for anything that you're trying to develop, like, shouldn't I like just, isn't it important for me to do this every day? As if I was telling her, like, you can just be easy with yourself. It's okay. You're not doing it every day. And I said, I completely agree with you. I think it is really important that you do it every day. But what good does it do to feel self-critical and ashamed if you set yourself a goal and you don't reach it? Like, what is that? What is, what avenue does that cut off? And from my perspective, I think it's curiosity, right? If you set yourself a goal, I want to meditate every day. And you get to the end of this week, right? And you get to the end of the week and you look back and you didn't meditate every day. And you think like, oh, I'm, I'm lazy or I'm irresponsible or whatever the label is, right? It stops you from being curious, but like, huh, I set this goal. It was important to me, but I didn't follow through on it. I wonder why that is. I wonder what evidence I can look at that might inform the decisions I make next week because I do want consistency in my practice, right? We don't do that piece because this emotion becomes so tied to it as if that outcome, the failure outcome and the shame that comes with the fear and anxiety that come with it is so baked in it's hard to even conceive of it. And this was the, the client was like saying, like, I can't, it's hard for me to even imagine, right? Sending a goal, not meaning it and feeling anything other than shame. Um, but I think it is possible. And that's what we're teaching people how to do. So what I'm hearing there is a um, juxtaposition of curiosity versus criticism mm-hmm. and, you know, being a, um, a, a mindful uh, you know, following mindfulness myself, the first thing that pops into my mind is non-judgment. And um, I wonder if you could speak to this idea of, of non-judgment in mindfulness and, and maybe more broadly, you know, in simple terms, what is mindfulness? We've used that word a lot so far, and, and maybe there are some folks who, who are listening who aren't so familiar with it. So I'm wondering if you could just uh, paint that picture for us. Yeah, so... Non-judgment, I, I think, well, lots of people might define it in slightly different ways. I think that's one of the things with mindfulness, it's become such a buzzword and you could do a search and read lots of books and see lots of different definitions, but at least the way we think of non-judgment is basically allowing things to be what they are, right? The idea of, of what is, right? So something happens, of course, we're human, we have a reaction to it. Um, but being able to just see what happened, see what our reaction to it and not need it to, or wish it to be something different. Right. And, and it's that, that needing that wishing that, that somehow trying to make something that's uncontrollable, controllable, trying to make those, those conditions change. One of the things that we would suggest is that that creates uh, suffering that creates a lot of the fear that I think Tim was alluding to right? That, that I should have been able to do something differently or better than, than I did. I should have been able to get 100% and I didn't. And so 
rather than feeling satisfied, rather than feeling content, we end up feeling not good enough, right? And, and so I, I sort of say a lot that a lot of us are walking around with this feeling of not good enough, this not good enough syndrome. I think non-judgment in many ways is sort of the opposite of that, right? That, that it is what it is. It's not that it's good, bad, right, or wrong. It just is. Yeah. And, and importantly, right, non-judgment doesn't mean being happy with what is, right? Like, because that, that in and of itself is a judgment. I'm judging this thing as good and I like it and I like that it's here and I want it to stay here, right? That makes me happy. Non-judgment is really just the kind of a, maybe like a more accurate, I don't know if that's a good word for it, but like just a, a reckoning with reality, which I think, I mean, to get to the second part of your question, like is mindfulness, you know, it is bringing our awareness to this moment, what's happening right here, right now. And rather than creating stories about it, right? Stories about what will come next because of it, stories about ourselves because of what's happening right now, right? We're really just sticking with what's here right now and approaching it with this non-judgmental attitude, right? So it's really, uh, I think, a very simple way to, to think about it is that it is, it's the combination of these two characteristics, right? The awareness that we bring to the moment and then the attitude that we apply to the moment, right? And that attitude being acceptance or non-judgment. But I, what I think becomes so challenging to people because we are so used to living in the past and in the future, right? Ruminating about the things that happened that we maybe wish were different, projecting out ahead. And, and this idea of acceptance really challenges that because it, it is just about this moment, right? If I'm feeling anxiety, right? And I can accept that, not be happy about it, not like it, right? But I can accept this is here right now. And maybe in several moments from now, it will be different. It probably will be. Things change. That's the nature of things. Um, but all of the energy that I spend, like wishing this moment right now were different, is, is energy that depletes me, energy that, that increases my sense of frustration because I'm banging my head against the wall that I can't move, right? But I might be able to make some decisions in this moment based on what I'm assessing, what I'm thinking and feeling, right? That could allow me to like get closer to a goal, something like that, to calm down in, in moments to come. But it really requires this intense connection to what's happening right now without making it more than it is, without projecting it out into the future, but really seeing like right here, right now, what's here and what do I want to do with it? I think uh, the sports example that, that really stands out to me, at least like uh, one example of it, that to try to crystallize some of what, what Tim is saying is, is and I, I tell this story a lot in our instructor training, so Taylor, I may have told it when you were there, um, is just a story about Ryan Grant, who's a former NFL running back. Um, and when he was a rookie with the Green Bay Packers, um, his first ever playoff game had kind of a nightmare start to the game, had a, had a series of turnovers, mistakes, um, Packers were losing, goes in at halftime, comes back out and he's terrific in the second half Packers come back and win the game. He's a big reason why they came back afterwards. Of course, the reporters are all over his locker. They want to know, wow, you know, you're this rookie you're this young player. You had this nightmare. How did you come out and have such a great second half? Um, and I had this response actually on my bulletin board in my office for the longest time. He basically just said three pithy sentences. He said, it happened. It sucked. Got to move on. It happened, it sucked, got to move on. 
And, and I think like, what a great way to capture the idea of mindfulness. Like Tim just gave this wonderful explanation, this great explanation <laughs> of the theory of what mindfulness is. And in practice, what this looks like is, okay, it happened, right? That's, that's the awareness piece. That's also part of the acceptance piece, right? So, okay, yeah, I had this nightmare first half. This happened. I'm aware that this happened. Yep, I can't change it, right? And yeah, it sucked. I'm not happy about it. That's not what I wanted to happen. I'm not feeling great about myself here at halftime, right? So these are some uncomfortable feelings. But guess what? The moment is what the moment is. I've got a second half to play. I kind of have to let that go and now refocus and, and maximize this moment that I'm in right now. And lo and behold, right, the second half was very different than the first half. Had he gone in at halftime and beat himself up and said, you're terrible, your career is over, your team hates you, um, you know, allowed the fear to consume him, already felt like they had lost the game. That's it. I blew it, right? You're going to play much, much differently in the second half. And, and so I think in a sport performance way, what we're really talking about is stuff happens. Good things happen. Bad things happen we want to train athletes to maximize every single moment that they're in because that's what adds up to peak performance, right? There's always going to be setbacks. There's always going to be failures, micro failures, macro failures that occur. There's always going to be successes. And if you allow those things to take you away from your performance, your performance is going to drop. So I'm glad that you brought it around to kind of what we're trying to do with mindfulness and performance, uh, because that that's a good segue to talk about uh, mindful sport performance enhancement, the program you uh, guys have created. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that and also how MSPE really starts to challenge this paradigm in sports. Sure. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we've been working on them as well. So Keith and our colleague, Carol Glass, you know, have been working on MSPE since the early 2000s. Um, I joined the team in, in about 2008, and so we've been working together now for well over a decade, uh, kind of building this, this program and, and recognizing a lot of what we've been talking about, about this fear-based culture in sport uh, and, and how, how toxic it can be. And this other way, this more acceptance or mindfulness-based approach can really help people unlock their potential. It just seemed like such a great fit to the sport environment and something that just was not really getting talked about. Or, or um, And, and, and this, these are nuanced, complex ideas. And so I think in, in creating MSB, what we wanted was something that was accessible. You know, this is an this is a program that that teaches you the steps, right? Because to Keith's point before about kind of making a concrete example out of kind of some of the abstract things that I was saying, I mean, these concepts can be really abstract. And, and especially if you're talking about a, a coach or an athlete who really doesn't have any training in like mental skills or psychological skills training or anything like that, to, to expect them to be able to just like get these abstract con concepts and, 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 and kind of distill them into a program that could help their athletes. That's a lot to ask someone. So we wanted to provide a framework, an infrastructure for that, right? That helps teach people the basic concepts of mindfulness and in a very concrete way, how do you apply them? You know, so we, we build people through, um, build up concepts and practices through the six week program, this MSB's program, where we're, where we're introducing kind of layers of mindfulness concepts, starting with this idea of awareness, and then getting into the more complex concepts like acceptance and non-striving. Uh, 
Um, and then along that, we're building up practice, right? Starting with sedentary mindfulness practice and then adding some mental movement, whether it's moving our attention around our bodies to then physical movement, like a walking meditation and yoga, ultimately culminating in a sport-specific meditation, something that, that really involves the kind of integral or essential actions in a given sport and using those as anchors for our mindful attention. Uh, and so it, it creates this really easy to follow pathway uh, to figure out how do I integrate mindfulness into my overall training? Uh, because really our intention is that MSBE is the beginning. I mean, it lays a foundation for what becomes a culture shift on a team, right? Not just kind of a one-shot intervention. Right. So, and, and we use a lot of physical parallels, right? So, so just like we go to the gym, we go to the track, we go out, we work out, we exercise our bodies. MSP is designed as a, as a mindfulness-based mental training program. What we're doing is we're strengthening the mind, specifically this, this muscle of attention, right? So that's the core thing that we're targeting is how do we pay attention? How do we experience the world? In this case, how do we pay attention while in the chaos and the emotion and all the trappings of sport? Right. And, and so we do use meditations as a way to, to experience and build these mindfulness skills. We also use um, discussions. We use what we call informal practices, right? So maybe not sitting, sitting down or standing up to meditate, but, but more of like a, an applied integrated activity, like bringing mindful attention to, to some activity that we're doing during our day. Right. So we're not training athletes how to meditate on the field. What we're teaching them how to do is, is how to tap into and strengthen this mindful style of attention and then bring that into their performances, right? So the idea is to reduce reactivity. The idea is to increase presence, to increase attention, to increase resilience, right? Because we know, as Tim was saying earlier, sport is rife with successes and failures. There's a lot to react to. It's chaos. There's a lot of things calling out for our attention. And ultimately what we want is we want our athletes and coaches, the folks who go through our training to be able to self-regulate, to be able to make choices, right? So that's a word that comes up a ton in our training is choice, the choice of what to pay attention to, the choice of when we find ourselves having a reaction to something, do we want to continue to give our attention to that or do we want to refocus on the task at hand, right? So ultimately it's about empowerment, it's about choice. And what we see, you know, we, we sort of joke a lot, our, the, the name of our program is a bit misleading because we talk about it as a performance enhancement program. And of course, ostensibly that's what it is, but it's really life skills, right? As Tim was saying, MSPE is just a beginning it's also something that we see these skills are generalizable to anything. They're generalizable to the classroom. They're generalizable to relationships, right? So, and oftentimes in the trainings we do, when people are having these light bulb moments and realizing, oh my gosh, I kind of get this stuff. Wow, I'm, I'm experiencing this differently. It may not even be on the field at first. It might be like in a relationship with a roommate or a friend or a parent that, wow, you know, here's the, I recognize we were about to go down this familiar road of conflict and have the same argument again. And I just realized I had a choice. Like, what do I want to do here? Um, and, and how those can be incredibly powerful moments. So it's not just about sports. It's not just about performance. Ultimately, it's about life and wellness and how do we experience the world and ourselves in it. And I'm sure it has implications for mental health as well. Uh, you know, and that's, that's what, what we want to talk about a little bit today. So I, could, I wonder if you could... Um, Talk a little bit about 
maybe how the current paradigm uh, impacts mental health and what are some of the, the positive um, effects of mindfulness on, on mental health if a coach or an athlete or a parent were to uh, start implementing that in their, in their day-to-day practice? Sure. Yeah. Well, so this is very much still a growing body of research, uh, particularly when it comes to this intersection of mental health and wellness and athletes and mindfulness, right? Though we have a lot of good research that looks kind of not specifically at athlete populations, but just at this connection to well-being and mindfulness. And yeah, we see, you know, it, it's, it buffers against depression. It reduces anxiety. It enhances satisfaction with life. It enhances, you know, your just um, overall sense of well-being. It reduces, you know, conflict in relationship. And we see all of these positive benefits. You know, when and your brain changes, right? And you, yes. And you see actual changes in your, the way your brain is, is structured and functions. Yeah. I mean, it, it literally, it, it impacts the way you perceive and interpret the world. Right. And so, I mean, just on its face, think about how profound that is for mental health and for well-being. right? That if you just perceive things in such a way that it creates less stress and anxiety, you're going to have less stress and anxiety, which of course is going to have a positive effect on your sense of well-being and your mental health. You know, and so all of these benefits, you know, we would expect they translate to athletes. And we do see that in the emerging research. We actually did a, um, an RCT uh, of MSPE and found this buffering effect to depression, whereas our, uh, the, the group of athletes who received MSPE um, didn't increase in depressive symptoms over the course of the semester where we were tracking them. But the control group who didn't receive MSPE did. Um, and I think that connects to kind of your question about, well, what's the impact of the current culture of sport? Right, this high-pressure, fear-based, anxiety-based culture—you know the the what we were talking about before about how it's really like, unless you're perfect, the only option is failure. Right, that creates stress and anxiety. That creates fear, and because a lot of athletes exist in this world where where they are not approached holistically, right? Really, like they are a body that shows up to do a task. And maybe their body can do that task really well. But for a lot of athletes, for a lot of coaches, like that's the, that's the, the one piece of their identity that is welcome on the field. But of course, these are whole people that have other trials and tribulations and other relationships, other parts of their identity. And, and so I think it's another big piece of MSPE and this mindfulness-based approach is it's a more holistic, right? It recognizes that people have multiple identities and that all these different factors that influence their life, their well-being, of course, are going to come in and impact their performance. Uh, so I think an athlete being approached more mindfully, having, having more of the pieces of themselves welcomed and, and, and able to get addressed as it relates to their performance, again, just enhances well, well-being, right? Because we're not ignoring or compartmentalizing or dismissing some of the some of the difficulties that these athletes are experiencing, they're not expected to just bury them, push them away. I think a lot of coaches are, are kind of afraid to open that box. I think too, I, I mentioned before this, this culture of not good enough, right? And, and so we're talking about this fear-based culture. I think if you dig a little bit deeper and look at, well, how do people motivate themselves? How do coaches motivate their athletes? I think, of course, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of different styles. But, but I think a common one that is tapped into is fear, 
right? And in fact, a lot of the athletes that I work with, it's hard for them to conceptualize motivating themselves with anything but fear, right? Because they fear like that's what gives them the edge, right? So, so feeling like I'm inadequate now and I've got to do all this hard work to climb this mountain so that I will be adequate, so that I, I will win, so that I will get whatever my goal is, right? Starting at the point of I'm inadequate, there's consequences to that, right? And, and, and so I often talk about the fear gap, right? This gap between how we see ourselves and where we think we ought to be or should be or needs to be. Um, and, and number one, that makes people feel pretty crummy about themselves, right? So maybe they, they feel like they need this to keep their edge, but in the meanwhile, they're putting themselves down. It's pretty, it's pretty lousy way to treat yourself, but also, okay, well, what does sports science teach us, right? Maybe you're not sold on this idea, like, oh, we got to be nice to ourselves, right? Maybe that doesn't resonate with you, but, but maybe what will resonate with you is, is the idea of being in the zone, right? We talk about being in the zone is this sort of optimal performance state. And in sports psychology, the thing that we often parallel to being in the zone is the state called flow. And flow is, is not just about sports, but, but basically an optimal performance experience when we're at our best, when we're just totally, totally engrossed in what we're doing and things just start to feel effortless. And that's when performance just tends to be um, at its highest. And, and one of the most important ingredients to flow. One of the things that sets up a flow state is what's known as the challenge skill balance, which is this idea that basically we want to feel like something is challenging, something is hard, but that we are equipped to meet that challenge, right? Not that it's going to be too easy and that we just have to show up and it'll, it'll be a victory, but also not that it's so hard that, that we're convincing ourselves we're going to fail, right? We want to believe, okay, I've got to work for this. I've got to try for this but I can do this, right? That is a key component to, to setting up this flow state. It's also essentially how we define confidence, right? Almost every athlete who walks in my door says, I want to feel more confident. Well, what is confidence? It's challenge skill balance. It's believing that I can meet the challenge that I'm facing. Well, if we're based in a system of motivation where people feel like they have to feel not good enough, they have to feel inadequate in order to keep an edge in order to work hard and achieve. Otherwise they'll be lazy or complacent or arrogant, right? Those are the three big ones that I hear all the time. What you're actually doing is going away from flow, going mm -hmm. away from being in the zone, going in the way, going away from these optimal performance experiences, making it harder for yourself, right? So, so we're not just suggesting everyone hold hands and sing Kumbaya and say, feel great about yourself, right? There, there is a robust science behind this where we're saying, look, you know, mindfulness, being able to just be present with what is, right? Being able to recognize the facts of the case, right? As opposed to all these narratives, all these stories that we tell ourselves. A lot of times when we recognize the facts, when we're just present with what is, it actually allows us much more easily to, to achieve the challenge skill balance, as opposed to going out of our way to create the story that somehow we need to motivate ourselves and um, actually impeding our own performance, actually sealing ourselves in with exactly what we're afraid of. So you said something interesting there, Keith, you said, you know, be with the facts and <clears throat> just to share a little bit of my own anecdotal experience with mindfulness and, and mental health, um, you know, my mental health really started uh, trending upwards uh, when I when I really started embracing mindfulness as a way of life. And 
I kind of wonder when the facts aren't so clear, such as somebody experiencing anxiety, or, you know, an athlete experiencing um, anxiety or depression or any other uh, range of mental health uh, challenges. How does, what are the actual mechanisms that, of mindfulness that really help an athlete in the situation where they're experiencing a challenge with mental health? Um, me, for instance, I've found it incredibly empowering to be able to observe my inner experience and then respond to it from kind of a space to see it and not feel like I have to immediately do something about it. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, with that, that idea of, of look at the facts, sometimes it's challenging to know what exactly what the facts are, uh, especially with, with, with your inner experience. So I'm kind of, kind of wondering what, what you would, how, how you would um, <clears throat> characterize those mechanisms that help with mental health. Yeah. Well, I, I, my first thought real quick, and I'll, you know, I, I'll be curious how Tim answers this as well. Um, we had a previous guest on our podcast, Steve Ward, who works with high pressure financial traders over in the UK. Um, I thought he characterized this beautifully. And, and he said he works with his traders to, to see the difference between uh, being basically on ground level and, and viewing themselves from a helicopter, right? Being able, like you're talking about making this space, right? So being able to see yourself with a little bit of distance, um, what we teach in mindfulness is that emotions and beliefs, thoughts, are not fact. They're, they're reflections of our narrative. And, and we all have them. It's not The message here is not you shouldn't feel or you shouldn't think. Of course you're going to think. Of course you're going to feel. But just because we think something or feel something doesn't make it true. right? So I'll, I'll go back to the Ryan Grant example for just a moment. If he's sitting in that locker room at halftime telling himself that he stinks, he's blown it, this game is over, his career is over, right? If he seals himself in with those thoughts and those feelings, that becomes his reality. And that reality is absolutely going to affect the way he operates for the rest of the game, as opposed to recognizing, okay, of course, having thoughts like that is normal. And, and probably anyone in that situation would have not so nice thoughts about themselves, but to recognize them as just thoughts. Okay. You know, I, I see that I'm being hard on myself. I'm recognizing I'm telling myself this story. Okay. But, but that's not the truth right? That's a thought I'm having. That's a feeling that I'm having. But thoughts and feelings, what we know about thoughts and feelings is that they always evolve, is that they always move on, right? They rise up, they cover us up for a little while, then they move on. I, I parallel them a lot to ocean waves, right? If you're sitting on the shore, watching waves come in and cover the sand, and then the, they recede back out, that's basically how thoughts and emotions are designed to work unless we attach ourselves to them, unless basically we decide, okay, this is it, this is the reality, now we're trapped in them, right? So being able to see with a little bit of distance, a little bit of perspective from that helicopter view rather than that ground level view where you're in it, right? And there's lots of different terms for the skill that we're talking about, depending on what school of mindfulness, mm -hmm. right? So this idea, sometimes it's called decentering, sometimes it's called diffusing, right? The ability of separating out this is a thought. This is a feeling. I see it for what it is. It doesn't have to be my truth. And it's, you know, we're also talking about choice here, right? When you're able to see things that way. Because, yeah, let's say you are an athlete who experiences a lot of pre-competitive anxiety. 
right? You get really, really familiar through, through a mindfulness practice with the way that your mind works. I mean, that's what we're doing in meditation, right? We're, we're, we're putting our attention on an anchor, say our breath, and then inevitably, because minds wander, right? We, we get to observe what our mind does and all the different pathways it goes, goes down. And then we get familiar with that feeling of our attention kind of leaving the present moment. We catch it and we bring it back. You know, and so how we, you know, that repetitive choice in meditation to like return to our breath, right? It's like karate kid, you know, wax on, wax off. That skill translates into these other situations where, where an athlete is approaching competition, they're feeling really anxious and they start to tell that story. Oh my God, I'm like, about the confidence. Like, I'm lacking confidence. And that means I'm not going to perform well. If I don't perform well, then my coach is going to be disappointed. If my coach, you know, on and on and on. And they can recognize in that moment, ooh, I'm jumping into the future. I'm telling a story, right? These aren't facts. That doesn't have to be my truth, right? Even though what is true right now is I am anxious. That might be a fact, Right? But to be able to acknowledge that simple fact, it's like, okay, I am anxious right now before this competition. Like, without figuring out what that means for me or what's going to happen to me next, I can just acknowledge that fact. And when I can acknowledge that fact without attaching all that emotion to it, right, then I have choices. It's like, okay, well, I know that when I'm this anxious, I am too aroused. I don't think clearly. And so I won't be able to play well. Like, let me engage in some, like, emotion regulation strategies. Let me bring my arousal level down, right? Like that's a choice you can make. Or, you know, even if you recognize like that your anxiety is so intense that you're not seeing things clearly, fine. Acknowledge that you have that, the intensity of anxiety. Choose to talk to a friend, mental performance consultant, the therapist, you know, to like help give you an alternate perspective because you are aware in that moment that your anxiety is so intense that it's stopping you from seeing things, right? Like, when we are able to just reckon with the present moment as it is, I think we are given so many more choices about how we want to handle it instead of, I I like the way that Keith is phrasing it, like sealing ourselves in um, with the fear and the anxiety to kind of the self-fulfilled prophecy that it just didn't have to be. Something that's also like really emerging in sports psychology literature is this idea that anxiety can actually facilitate performance in some ways, depending on how you choose to relate to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So Tim is talking about, you know, this example of I'm anxious, I'm not confident, I'm going to play poorly, this, you know, and and so forth, this, this sort of story that we create. Anxiety is uncomfortable. No one likes to feel anxious, but also with this idea of choice, right? Recognizing that anxiety is there. It could also be a recognition. Okay. I feel anxious. It's reasonable that I feel anxious Mm -hmm. in this situation. I'm anxious because I care. I'm anxious because I'm invested in what I'm doing and I don't know what's going to happen next. Okay. I don't need to know what's going to happen next. I don't need to make this anxiety go away. In fact, I know because I know myself, I know my body, I know my mind, right? The kinds of things that come from mindfulness practice that Once I get into my performance, my anxiety is going to decrease and it's going to go away and I'm going to get comfortable and I'm going to loosen up and I'll get into my performance. So I don't need to make this smaller now. I don't need to tell myself I'm going to fail because I feel anxious or that this is bad or wrong. In this moment, I feel anxious. I understand why I feel anxious. I'm going to let it be here. And I understand, like I was saying before, it's a temporary experience. It's going to go away. Okay. Right. So, so 
John Kabat-Zinn, who's one of our inspirations and, and someone else we've been fortunate enough to have on our podcast um, in the past, he talks about mindfulness as simultaneously the easiest thing to do in the world and the hardest thing to do in the world. And, and this is what we're talking about, right? That, that tolerating anxiety, allowing anxiety to be there, it's really freaking hard. It's really hard. And yet, all we're doing is letting it sit there. That's all we're doing. We're not having to make it smaller or bigger or different. It just is. And we know that it's going to evolve. So the trick here is just being able to see it, to diffuse from it or to center from it, create a little bit of space. Okay. I am not my anxiety, right? Something that Tim often, I, I bar, I'm going to steal it <laughs> from you, Tim, right? Like, even if you look at the English language and how we talk about these things, right? Like we say, I am anxious. I am depressed. No, I feel anxious right? That the anxiety is a state. It's not a definition. It's yeah. not a characterization. It's not, I am anxious. I am not, that, that is not my persona, right? That, that I can feel anxious. And in five, 10, 15 minutes late, later, I might feel quite different than I do right now. Well, it's about that time, guys. Uh, we're about to wrap up here. Um, but I just wanted to ask one more question. There are thousands of athletes, student athletes, elite athletes who struggle with uh, mental health issues and, and being in this space, I wonder what advice do you give to those athletes who are looking for resources or want to prioritize their mental health? Where do they start? I mean, it there are resources out there. Obviously, I wish there were more, um, but I, I do think we have come a long way in destigmatizing mental health um, services seeking, right? Help seeking. And so, depending on the context, right? For college athletes, pretty much every university has a university counseling center that offers free or incredibly low cost services. You know, like go, go to, their coach, go to their AD or just go to the counseling center. Um, like they will be able to set you up with the resources, whether that's there in the university with a counselor in their counseling center, or most counseling centers have some referral network to clinicians in the community. Um, but, um, but really the most important thing is to, is to ask for the help, right. Um, to just, do whatever you can, hear someone else's story, ask your teammates. And I know this stuff is hard to talk about. It's, it can be really hard to acknowledge. I, I might need some, I might need some help or I'm struggling a little bit. Um, and in fact, I, I remember seeing some research about how like the average time from like symptom onset to when someone seeks help, um, it's like different for different diagnoses. Um, but, you know, uh, for a lot of people with anxiety and depression, it's an average of seven to nine years from when they first experienced symptoms to when they actually was like that, that kind of blows my mind to think about that. It's someone that can be suffering for almost a decade before they decide to seek, to seek help. Um, you know, but there are other great uh, like resources like psychology today has a, has a resource on their website that you can like look up a therapist pretty much in any zip code in the country. Um, there are, there are other newer organizations that are just like, 
created specifically to help people find therapists. You know, some of them are geared towards finding therapists just generally, like you would just do a Google search. Some are specifically about helping low-income people, like Maryland and Virginia have this great uh, program called Open Path um, that allows people to get connected to therapists for really, really low costs. And now with emerging technology, there's, you know, there's all these text-based you know, ways to, to contact licensed mental health professionals, you know, like Michael Phelps is a, you know, um, spokesperson for one of them. So there, there are an increasing number of resources out there. Um, and that to me feels like a, like a step in the right direction. Well, and I think in our field too, and I'll just keep this really quick. I know we're, we're short on time. Um, you know, it's important. We, we make this distinction, you know, between, you know, clinical issues and performance issues. And, and so we talk about mental health. I think everything Tim just said is great in, in terms of finding therapists. If you feel like you're having a mental, mental health issue that would require some kind of treatment, um, you know, th those are, are great suggestions. But there are so many things you can do too if you're not at that point, if you're trying to promote your mental health um, and, and just like on a day-to-day -day basis or just, you know, for performance reasons or just because you want to feel good, right? So um, you know, this is going to sound so simple, but one of the biggest things we recommend is just slowing down and pausing, <laughs> right? Right. Just slowing down and pausing and, and kind of asking yourself, well, what do I need? You know, what do I need? How do I want to fuel my body today? You know, how much, you know, how much sleep do I need? You know, have I exercised, you know, what, what, what is fun for me? You know, maybe you want to do something like, like meditation, something like coming off of that, that physiological high that so many of us are addicted to and stay on all the time. So doing something that is truly relaxing and soothing to our bodies, um, you know, certainly being mindful of things like how often we're on our phone, checking our phone, <laughs> doing things that we might think of as relaxation, but actually are stimulating, draining kinds of activities. Um, so, so I think it's important to look at this from all sides that, that absolutely to destigmatize when people need additional help from a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor or someone like that, but also what are these practices that we can do on a daily basis just to promote our wellness and keep ourselves feeling good and, and performing well and happy in our lives. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Keith and Tim. Uh, do, do you want to let the listeners know any, any way about um, how to find you on social media or anything about the MSP Institute before we wrap up? Sure. So um, we have a, a website for our MSP Institute. It's mindfulsportperformance.org. Um, and you're welcome to, to check that out. We have some cool resources on there and, and ways to connect with us. Um, we also have a Facebook page. Um, I, Keith, I, I have a, uh, a Twitter handle. It's at mindfulsportdoc. Um, we also, for our, our podcast, we have a YouTube channel where a lot of times at the start of our episodes, we uh, we do little exercises, little meditations, just if you're interested in doing that kind of thing, we certainly suggest going back and listen to some of our older episodes. Um, so uh, if you want to check out our YouTube channel where those are all posted, um, in addition to being in our, in our podcast feed. Um, and then we have our Instagram page. Um, and, and so uh, lots of ways to connect with us. Um, and, and hopefully if this stuff was interesting or, or you're interested in learning more about MSPE or some of the mindfulness work, please, you know, don't, don't be shy about reaching out to us and letting us yeah. know. All right. Well, thank you so much again. And, uh, we'll, uh, talk to you both very soon. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you Taylor. Taylor. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye.